continuing our study tonight of the Colossian epistle, Paul's epistle to this church at Colossae, which we have often mentioned in our series, was threatened by a heresy that was comprised of paganism, Gnosticism, and Judaism. And the epistle written to counter that threat is an epistle that exalts the Christ and which uh, exalts him in a way that has caused this epistle to be designated the most Christ-centered epistle in Scripture because there is so much about the all-sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And that was to counter the idea that certainly deity could not uh, dwell among humanity, that God could not become man. That was the Gnostic idea. And that in order to approach, to approach God, one needed to approach him through a series of angels or angelic beings. And of course, the Apostle Paul denied that. This beautiful epistle does exalt the Christ and his body. Not the physical body of Christ, but the spiritual body of Christ. And as we continue our study of it tonight, we will see that body again mentioned by the Apostle Paul in a way that reminds us of the singularity of the body of Christ, his church, and the preciousness of that body. Tonight we're talking about clothing. Now last Sunday morning we talked about clothing in the physical sense as we ask is there a biblical standard of modesty. We're not talking about physical clothing tonight in the Colossian epistle, but spiritual clothing. You may remember that last time in chapter 3, in the uh, verses leading up to verse 12 where we begin tonight, the Apostle Paul reminds these Christians, and thus Christians for all time who have become Christians, that they have put on the new man. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And that's where we began tonight, with another therefore. Therefore, looking to see what it's there for, it takes us back to the verses we have just read. Go all the way back to verse 8, as a matter of fact, in chapter 3, to see that we're to put off certain things, anger, wrath, malice, Blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And so the putting off we have already discussed. And now tonight we are going to further discuss the putting on, the new clothing that is to be put on. He's already referenced it in general terms in verse 10 where he says to put on the new man. But now in verse 12 he's going to get specific, more specific about the qualities that we are to imbibe in our lives as children of God. And again, it's under the figure of clothing. Laying aside the filthy garments of sin. Laying aside those things that characterized us when we were a part of the world. And now all things have become new. We are a new creation. And now there is protective clothing, if you will, for those who have been purified. Chapter 2 of Colossians Describe the process by which we are purified or become purified, the process of purification. And now, in chapter 3, the protection for those who have been purified. 
What kind of clothing is it that we're to put on? It's not enough to simply rid ourselves of the sinful garments, those tarnished and um, soiled garments of sin, but we have to replace them with new clothing. And beginning here in verse 12, he specifies some of those beautiful qualities that are to characterize every child of God. But notice how he, notice first of all in verse 12, how he refers to those who are the children of God, those who are Christians. He says, therefore, as the what? As the elect of God. And it behooves us to spend a little bit of time with that expression, the elect of God, because of the misunderstanding and the misapplication of what that term elect means and the Calvinistic doctrine that so permeates the religious world to some degree and in some form or another. Infant baptism, for example, which is practiced widely in the religious world, has its roots in Calvinism, has its roots in the idea of total hereditary depravity, has its roots in the idea that a man is born in sin and therefore that sin has to be removed even from the most innocent little babe. But certainly that is not what the Bible teaches. A part of that Calvinistic doctrine is that there is a certain, that there is a certain number of individuals that has been elected to salvation, a certain number that has been elected to damnation, and that that number cannot be improved upon or diminished by even one soul. God has already determined that. And all that remains for us to do is simply to wait and see whether the Holy Spirit comes upon us in some way to prove to us that we're among the elect. The Bible knows no such doctrine. But the Bible does know something, obviously, and speak something about a specific kind of election. What is it? The election that we've just referenced uh, that is Calvinistic in nature? No. But the idea that those who are the elect are those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ. And what God has predetermined is that only those who obey the gospel of Christ, the gospel of his dear son, will be saved. If you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter says something about this election. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That gives us a little more information about who the elect of God are to whom Paul makes reference here as he writes to these Colossians. How did they become the elect of God? They became the elect of God, as Peter further describes it, in sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is being set apart. Sanctification of the Spirit is the Spirit's work in setting us apart. How does the Spirit work in setting us apart? The Spirit works through the Word in setting us apart. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Whose obedience does Peter reference? Our obedience. What sprinkling is he talking about? Sprinkling for baptism, as so many practice today? No, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Where is the sprinkling of the blood of Christ? Uh, take, where does it take place? In the burial in baptism. If you'll go to Hebrews with me for just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 9, 
In Hebrews chapter 9, we learn, of course, that without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That's verse 22. According to the law, almost all things are purged with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. But now go back up in Hebrews 9 to verses 13 and 14. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 tell us, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Purge your conscience from dead works by being what? Sprinkled, as it were. A figurative reference to the sprinkling under the old covenant of the blood of bulls and goats that simply typified the blood of Christ that would ultimately be applied or sprinkled, as it were. So it's not sprinkling in baptism to which Peter makes reference in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, but the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 10 this time and look at verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 10. And here, the apostle Paul, uh, or if he be the writer of uh, Hebrews, and many think so, let us draw near, he writes, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Notice this, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and listen to it, and our bodies washed with pure water. What is the washing of the pure, with the pure water of the body? That's baptism. What is the sprinkling? The sprinkling is the sprinkling of the blood of Christ to which the writer alludes. When does that sprinkling of the blood take place? When the body is washed in pure water, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ occurs. Therefore, when Peter says, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, he is referencing the process by which the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse you from sin. When is that? When the body is washed with pure water. And back to the subject of election, what was elect according to the foreknowledge of God? What was elected? What was elected according to the foreknowledge of God was this very plan by which man would be sanctified or set apart for that holy use. In other words, God in his foreknowledge determined and planned that only those who obey the gospel of Christ will be saved. The plan was foreknown. The plan was foreordained. Not the man, but the plan. The plan by which man is to be saved. We must answer the call of the gospel in order to be saved or to become among the elect. Sanctification of the Spirit is the cleansing by the teaching of the Holy Spirit through our obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ that takes place only in baptism. That's clear from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, coupled with Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, and also Hebrews 10, 22. And so when Paul here in the Colossian letter writes about the elect of God and refers to these Christians as the elect of God, they were those who were elected in the sense only that they became obedient to the plan that was foreknown and foreordained by God, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Long before the Christian dispensation, back in the Mosaic and even the patriarchal dispensation, God had already determined that ultimately, through the giving of his only begotten Son, man would ultimately be saved. And even those under the patriarchal and Mosaic age would have to be saved by the same blood that would be shed on Calvary that would flow backward, as it were, to cleanse those who were faithful under those previous dispensations and continue to flow forward to cleanse all those who will what? Be obedient to the Spirit 
be sanctified by the teaching of the Spirit, set apart by their obedience to the gospel, cleansed thereby by the blood of Christ, when their bodies are washed in pure water, that is, when their bodies are submerged in that burial, which is baptism. That is clearly affirmed in the passages we've noted and reaffirmed in many passages that could be cited, including every conversion in the book of Acts, which culminates with the burial in water by every candidate who heard and responded to the gospel of Christ. It is clearly taught that the man, the individual, is not the one who's elected or foreordained and cannot change that, but that the plan itself was elected and foreordained and that only those who obey that plan, who answer the call of the gospel, will be saved. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul there, writing to the church at Thessalonica and reminding them of what they had done in becoming Christians, says this, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning, now listen to this, chose you for salvation, and here ties in with what we've read in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. God from the beginning chose you, Thessalonians, for salvation individually? No. Chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Tell me one ounce of difference between, between what Paul says here and what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. No difference whatsoever. Now listen to verse 14. To which he called you by our gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That ties it all together beautifully and says that the elect are those who obey the gospel. And what God chose from the beginning was that all those who obey the gospel, equivalent to being sanctified by the Spirit and believing the truth in this passage, will be saved and all, all others will be lost but we have to answer the call therefore the choice is ours therefore election as the calvinists teach it is nowhere taught in scripture god has predetermined the plan but not the man we make that determination by our obedience or our disobedience to the gospel of christ and so when we see phrases as we do here in this text we're looking at in verse 12 the elect of God, let us never lose sight of the fact that it is the plan that God foreordained. It is the plan that was elected, not the man individually, and that we are called by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, and that only those who answer that call are those who become the elect of God. The Colossians had done it to whom Paul writes this epistle. The Thessalonians had done it, to whom he wrote an earlier epistle. And so many of you here tonight have done it in answering the call of the gospel. Now, having answered that call, what kind of clothing is enjoined upon us to put on as holy and beloved? And again, those are two additional expressions other than the elect, which describe the character of those who were Christians. They are holy, set apart. In fact, the sanctification that is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and in 1 Peter 1, 
the verses we read is the very same concept as the word holy, set apart, sanctified, set apart for a holy use, and beloved by Paul here and beloved of God, obviously. What are they to put on? It will tell us what we're to put on. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. That's the conclusion to verse 12. Tender mercies. Tender mercies describes a compassion that is very quickly and easily touched when we see others suffering. It is a readiness and an eagerness and a sensitivity, if you will, to, to the distress and the sorrow of others, the plight of others, rather than being indifferent and insensitive to others, as so much of the world is today, tragically. That is not to characterize the child of God. Every child of God is to be merciful, sensitive to the needs of others, the distresses of others, the sorrows of others. Again, Paul in his Roman epistle reminds us that we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It's an attitude that is enjoined upon us here in the expression tender mercies. But the next word, kindness, takes us a step farther because there we are to act upon that compassion that is to characterize us described in the words tender mercies, and do those things that allow that compassion to be shown. Acts of kindness, benevolent acts. Act upon the compassion that we feel in our hearts, as it were, and do those things that characterize us as being kind individuals. And then the word humility. The word humility describes uh, a characteristic that we've talked about so often because the scriptures talk about this characteristic so often. We talked about it this morning in Psalm 86 as we looked at the first words of that psalm, a prayer of David to the Father where he calls upon God to bow down his ear and to hear his plea because I am poor and needy. In other words, the humility that David expressed is the humility that Christ enjoined as we talked about this morning in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Passage after passage after passage we find in Scripture from Old Testament to New that condemns pride and exalts humility. Humility is something that is to be genuine. It is foundational to the Christian life. And if it is there genuinely, as it should be, then so much else falls into place in the life of the Christian and in that Christian's relationship to others. Genuine humility will prevent so many problems between brethren, so many problems between brethren and those who are not brethren. Genuine humility will cause you to consider others better than yourself in a way that will keep you from acting in a way that indicates you think you are better than uh, someone else. Humility, it is so crucial to the Christian existence. And then there's meekness. We sometimes define meekness and hear it defined as strength under control. Jesus was meek 
Moses was described in his day as meek above all men who were upon the face of the earth in Numbers 12 and verse 3. And yet he had strength as a leader of God's people. So meekness is not weakness. It is often described, and I think accurately so, as strength under control. In the greatest invitation ever issued by the Lord himself when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, the King James says. The New King James says, Gentle and low. I am gentle. I am gentle. Meekness, equivalent to gentleness, but not weakness. And we know in looking at the Lord's life as he lived among men, meek and lowly in heart, gentle and lowly in heart, in no way describes weakness in our Lord, but a strength under control. And perhaps associated and growing out of that is long-suffering. The ability to withstand persecution, the ability to hold up, under persecution of various kinds, and to suffer long with those who would persecute us, and to be long-suffering with others. And that leads to the next expression in verse 13 as part of the Christian's clothing. Bearing with one another. Being patient with one another. Not wearing our, our feelings on our sleeve, so to speak, but going the second mile giving the benefit of the doubt. Love suffereth long and is kind. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love suffers long and is kind, bearing with one another, being patient with one another. And growing out of that, the next expression is forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another. But notice the standard. Notice the barometer, if you will, of the forgiveness that we are to practice as children of God. Even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. This is very similar to the expression in another of Paul's epistles in chapter 4 of the Ephesian letter and verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. There he says, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Here he says, even as Christ forgave you. Who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. The expression in the Colossian letter makes it abundantly clear that Christ is God. Christ is deity. What did Jesus do when he was on earth? Did he ever forgive anyone's sins while he was on earth? He did. What was the reaction of the Jews of his day many times when he forgave those sins on earth? Who can forgive sins except God? This man is a blasphemer. He purports to forgive sins. No, he forgave sins because he was God on earth, and only God can forgive sins. So when Paul writes in this epistle, even as Christ forgave you, it's not a misprint, it's not a mistake, it is an affirmation that Christ is deity, a member of the Godhead, and capable of forgiving sins. And remember, Christ prayed as he was hanging upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. But that leads us to this point about forgiveness, a point we have made but needs to be reiterated from time to time when we have occasion to do so, and that is that there is a vast difference between forgiveness, actual forgiveness and the extending of forgiveness, and a forgiving spirit. 
And while the child of God is to adorn himself as a part of the clothing of a Christian with a forgiving spirit, and that is something that is always to be there, the child of God cannot do what God himself or Christ himself cannot do, and that is forgive those who will not turn from their sins. And so we need to understand and appreciate that when Paul uses a phrase like, even as Christ forgave you, or even as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4.32, we forgive as God forgives. We have a forgiving spirit because God's spirit is a forgiving spirit. And God's desire is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. But is God going to save all mankind simply because his desire for all mankind is that all mankind would be saved? No, but he's eager to forgive those who will respond to him. And so must we be eager to forgive those who have sinned against us and who will repent. But what if they won't repent? Then we cannot forgive. Nor can anyone forgive me if I refuse to repent of the sins that I've committed against someone else and against God. Repentance is a part of the equation, an essential a part of the, a part of the equation. Luke 17:3 is the passage we often cite here that is so pertinent to this discussion. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That says it all. If a brother sins against you, rebuke him. Do it in a Christian way. Do it in the right way, the way that hopefully will bring forth repentance so that forgiveness can be extended. But if he will not repent, then the Lord says in that passage, you cannot forgive. Should you continue to have a forgiving spirit toward that individual? Of course. Of course. But you cannot forgive when repentance is not forthcoming because we cannot do what God himself, because of his justice and nature, cannot do. But be eager to forgive and always have that forgiving spirit. And if anyone has a complaint against another, what is understood in this passage is that repentance is understood here. Forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, was he asking God to forgive them regardless of their response to the gospel? When the gospel was first preached on Pentecost, following the resurrection and ascension of Christ, no, his prayer was, Father, forgive those who will hear the gospel and who will respond to it. And the prayer of Jesus on Calvary was answered on Pentecost. That prayer was answered on Pentecost when some 3,000 souls responded to the preaching of Peter and the other apostles repented after their belief, confessed, obviously, and were baptized for the remission of sins. The prayer of Jesus was answered. And that prayer is still being answered by all those who will, as long as time stands, respond to the glorious gospel which he shed his blood to establish. And then in verse 14, notice what we have. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond 
of perfection. The idea of above all these things is over all these things because the figure is still a figure of clothing. So what you have is the garment of the Christian now, and that garment consists of tender mercies, kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. All of these things are now a part of the Christian's garment, or should be. We're to keep on adding these things. The Christian life is a life of growth, isn't it? It's a life of progress. We're to get better and better at adapting these things to our lives. The longer we live and the longer we feed upon those things that will enable us to do so. But over all of this garment, tying it all together, as it were, is a belt, a girdle, if you will. A belt, and that's the figure that is used. The bond, the bond there indicates a belt or a girdle. And the long flowing robes of those in, in New Testament times were sometimes raised to about knee length and girded at that position with a belt that enabled men to walk uh, more freely as they traveled. And what Paul uses here is that figure of that girdle or that belt that ties the Christian life together. The central element in the whole garment that permeates every other quality and guides us is love. Love is the supreme motivating factor in the life of the child of God. That's what ties it all together so beautifully. That's what keeps it together. The bond of perfection is love. Love motivates. Galatians 5, verse 6, and I've mentioned this passage before, and I've said this about it. I believe it summarizes better than any passage I have ever found in Scripture what the Christian is to be. In summary fashion, it is this. In Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. He's writing to the Galatians about those who were trying to bind the law of Moses on them. And he said, in Christ Jesus, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that avails anything. Here's what it is. In Christ, this is it. Faith which works by love. I believe that's the best summary you could ever find in succinct fashion of what the Christian life is to be. It's a life of faith, but what kind of faith? which works, but how is that working faith motivated? By love. Not by duty, not by dread and terror or fear of going to hell, but by love. A working faith that is motivated by love. It's really the same idea, only here it's clothing. What ties together all of the Christian's garment is that permeating Love that is always present. And what will result if all of the garment is there as it should be? Verse 15, the peace of God will rule in your hearts. Let it rule. Let it rule. All of these other things being where they should be in the garment of the child of God produces that peace that Paul elsewhere writes about that surpasses all understanding. The peace of God from the God of peace. 
John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Because if everything is in place, as it should be, and love is tying together all of the elements of clothing in the Christian's garment, then peace will rule in the heart. The peace to which you were called. The peace to which you were called. That gets us back to the call of the gospel, doesn't it? Second Thessalonians 2.14. The peace to which you were called, but notice these next three words, in one body. You were called by the gospel into one body. Tragically today, there are so many religious bodies. The Bible still speaks of only one. Not a denomination among denominations. Not even just a non-denominational body, but a pre-denominational body that came into existence before any denomination ever reared its head Beginning on Pentecost, to which we've already alluded, when some 3,000 precious souls answered the call of the gospel and became a part of that one body. And how did they become a part of that one body? Answering the call of the gospel by believing, repenting, confessing Christ, and being baptized. And Paul reminds the Corinthians in another passage in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that they had done the same thing when he reminds them, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now think about that for a moment. Here Colossians 3, 15 says you were called in one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says you were baptized into one body. Doesn't that tell you that to answer the call that puts you in the one body involves baptism? It has to. The same writer who wrote you were called in one body, elsewhere wrote you were baptized into one body. How can you be called into the body without being baptized into the body? Paul says you can't. And yet the world, for the most part, religiously today says, you answer the call and then you can be baptized, but you're already in the body before you're baptized. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, into one body. What is that one body? The church. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and then he adds in that Corinthian text, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. The Christian continues to drink into the teaching of the one spirit by putting on the clothing that Paul in this epistle is writing about. And the last three words we'll examine tonight are these. And be thankful. And that word be is in a tense which means keep on being thankful. Don't ever stop being thankful. And why should we? Why should we? When even illness, disease, loss of loved ones, so many traumatic experiences that come to the lives of children of God. Does that give them a reason to then cease to be thankful? No. They can suffer and they can sorrow, but not as those who have no hope 
and who cannot continually be thankful for that hope. You see, no matter what the outward circumstances are that we have to deal with in life, and they can be indeed difficult, oh, so difficult. If we're still in Christ, we can still be thankful and keep on being thankful that the peace of God rules in our hearts, though something else may be attacking our bodies, the peace of God still rules in our hearts. And we can be thankful for that and that we're a part of that one body, the church of our Lord. Are you a part of that body tonight? If not, you need to answer the call to become among the elect. It's up to you. God has not made the choice as the Calvinists teach, ahead of time so that you have no part to play in it. No, God has elected or predetermined that only those who obey the gospel will be saved. He has predetermined that, but you must determine whether you'll obey the gospel or not. Will you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Will you repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins? If so, you'll answer the call, and he'll add you to his body because you've been called then into that body by being baptized into that body based upon a belief that's led you to repent and confess. And if you've been a part of that body but you know tonight that you're no longer a faithful part of that body, then come back to that body and to the head, Christ, in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed in that way. And he will forgive. He has that forgiving spirit even now, but he is ready to extend the actual forgiveness only to those who will repent. If that's your need tonight, we plead with you to do so as we stand to sing to encourage you.